Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. That was a bucket list item for me. <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I am Mark Ross, managing partner of PwC here in Cleveland and a proud City Club member. It is my pleasure today to introduce our speaker, the, the Chief National Security Correspondent for CNN and author of The Shadow War, Inside Russia and China's Secret Operations to Defeat America, Jim Shudo. One of our critical platforms at PwC today is focused on helping companies meet their strategic goals while, man while managing risk and regulatory change. What's happening in China and Russia, everything from satellite weaponry and cyber attacks to disinformation campaigns and industrial esp espionage represents a significant threat to global companies and democracy as a whole. At PwC, our purpose is to build trust in society and solve important problems and there are arguably no more important problems than the threats we're here to talk about today. In his newest book, The Shadow War, Mr. Shudo argues that China and Russia are engaging in a new and disturbing kind of warfare, often unknown to the public, with the goal of unseating America from its place as a global powerhouse. While Americans may be most familiar with Russia's attempted interference in the 2016 election, as Mr. Shudo will attest today, that is just one example of the tactics China and Russia are employing, tactics that have remained far underneath the radar screen so as to avoid provoking military conflict. Mr. Shudo began his career as the moderator and producer of a weekly public affairs talk show on PBS. He worked as journalist for Asia Business News, as a senior foreign correspondent for ABC News, and as the Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor to Gary Locke, the U.S. Ambassador to China, before joining CNN in 2013, or at least so they tell me. Today, Mr. Shudo reports and provides analysis across the network's programs and platforms on all aspects of U.S. national security, including foreign policy, the military, intel the intelligence community, and the ongoing Russia investigation. He also serves as co-anchor of CNN Newsroom alongside Poppy Harlow. He is the recipient of many distinguished awards, including the Edward R. Murrow Award, the George Polk Award, and a citation for excellence from the Overseas Press Club for his undercover reporting from Myanmar, uh, where he bucked government restrictions to tell the stories of that country's regressive regime. Mr. Shudo holds a bachelor's degree in Chinese history from Yale University. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club and those joining us online, please join me in welcoming Jim Shudo. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm grateful to all of you for being here. I'm grateful to the City Club for welcoming me here. I'm grateful to my old college classmate, Noel Celeste, for, for planting this idea in my brain. Uh, and I, 
uh, and I appreciate it. It's, it's nice to be reconnected. I did not know that, that as part of being welcomed here, I had the option of an audit by PwC. <laughs> that was unexpected. I do assure you that once that audit is complete, I will release my tax return. <laughs> to all who want to see them. A, lo a lot of folks uh, will ask me the origin story of the book, when I decided to sit down and write this thing. Um, and I want to get to that, but, but there's a pre-origin story which came to mind with, with the 30th anniversary that we just saw uh, of the massacre in Tiananmen Square. In, in May 1989, Noel and I were, were coming to the end of our freshman year at Yale, and my family, I, I had a sister, I have three sisters, but I had a sister who was living in Asia at the time, and my parents and another sister went to visit visit her. She was in Taiwan, but they went around mainland China as well. And that trip took them to Beijing. Of course, you'd go to the capital, you see the Forbidden City, and they found themselves in Beijing in May 1989. And in the midst of these unexpected and, and magical protests against the government. And we have family photos, I had them as a kid, of my parents and sisters inside Tiananmen Square in the midst of all these young students and next to the, that famous goddess of democracy uh, with smiles and celebration and dancing and singing. My parents left and sisters left Beijing the day that martial law was declared, at nearly the end of May, and then in the succeeding days, as they were still in Asia traveling around, of course, the news broke of the crackdown in the early morning hours of June 4th, and they're reading about it in the papers and they're watching it on cable television uh, with, with sadness and fear, imagining who they had met in that square that had died, and you know, there, there were hundreds, thousands, folks just didn't know. I actually found recently, because both my parents passed away, but my mom had saved newspapers that they had collected around Asia, the, the front pages of the International Herald Tribune, the Asia Times, et cetera, that had the pictures from Tiananmen. Uh, and I was so glad to be able to, that those were still around. Uh, end of freshman year is when you choose your major. And, and I, like a lot of freshman liberal arts majors <laughs> at Yale, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, so, so history seemed like a good idea. Uh, but in particular, I wanted to learn about China. I saw these events there and said, this is something I just need to know more about, and uh, ended up choosing to focus on China, and we had the advantage of a fantastic professor, professor there in Jonathan Spence, who had just written a book, The Search for Modern China, which kind of told the story of China from the end of the empire up to the, to the moment that we were facing that day. Um, so that's where the, the idea and interest in China was planted in my head. I went on to, to study it in, in college. I mean, not, I, I didn't call myself a China scholar, but I certainly learned a lot about it to the, to, the, to the extent that when I graduated, again, not quite sure what I wanted to do, uh, I decided to go to China, and I applied for a Fulbright Fellowship and went out there uh, with the intention of going for a year and ended up staying for five years. I worked as a reporter based in Hong Kong, but covering the whole region and going to mainland China in these heady days in the early 1990s. Um, and as not only I looked at that 30th anniversary just a few days ago, but as I've, I've been writing this book and following the relationship between the U.S. and China in more recent years, I often go back to that moment there when you had this uh, contradiction, really, because you, you had this hope and this sort of Beijing spring, uh, a portion of the country that wanted to take 
that country in a very different direction, and it was crushed just horribly in a way that many Chinese, even at senior levels, protested, right? I mean, this was not a, it was not the, the whole country didn't decide to roll the tanks in, into Tiananmen Square, but certain leaders did, and they won out. So you had that hope, and then that hope crushed, but then following it, you had this remarkable rise of China. Who would have thought in the wake of 1989 that over this succeeding 30 years, China would, would bring hundreds of millions of people out of poverty? I mean, you can't argue with that, that record of economic success, um, but also, sadly, carry out a whole host of bad activities. Here we are in 2019, as China nears economic parity with the US, repeating the tactics of 20th century totalitarians. There are a million Muslim Uyghurs in detention camps today in 2019. We barely talk about it. It's amazing. Um, and that, to me, is, is, is part of the story behind this. I mean, it's, it's a path that China has taken, but it's also a path that we, uh, Americans, have often misread, often been surprised by, often miscalculated by. And in that are, are the roots of the shadow war, uh, which I'll describe to you in greater de detail in a moment, but also what I believe is our failure to respond to the shadow war um, through multiple administrations of both parties, to be clear. Uh, but our response, misreading repeatedly what China wants and what they're likely to do, and similarly with Russia. So let's get into today a bit more. What is the shadow war? Uh, this is a more recent product of my experience being a, a national security reporter uh, who covers the intelligence agencies, the Defense Department, the State Department in Washington, but also a longtime foreign correspondent of 20 some odd years, where I found myself over the course of those years on many fronts of this shadow war. I went to Ukraine in 2014 during Russia's stealth invasion of, of Crimea and then later eastern Ukraine. I flew over China's man-made islands in the South China Sea on, on a U.S. spy plane, a P-8, in, in 2015. Uh, during the 2016 election, I was deeply involved in covering Russia's interference in the presidential election, spent a lot of time in the NSA Operations Center, spoke to the folks who first recognized this and how they were responding to it. I would later spend time at half a dozen bases around the country that form part of U.S. Air Force Space Command. Uh, President Trump talks about establishing a space force. The truth is we have a space force already. Hundreds of thousands of uh, in uniformed and, and civilian uh, folks in service now already describing themselves as space warriors because Russia and China have deployed weapons in space. More on that in a moment. Uh, as I was on each of these fronts, uh, and let me name one more because this is essential to the book, uh, I hop on a US nuclear submarine on exercises under the Arctic where they are training to better track quieter, faster Russian submarines in the Arctic, which is a new playing field, sort of a new great game as the ice melts between, between the powers here. Uh, and, and what struck me is that those things are not happening in isolation, right? China is not manufacturing territory, doing territorial acquisition by different means in the South China Sea just by itself. That, that's part of something bigger. Russia did not choose to invade a sovereign European country that was moving closer to the, to the West, cooperation agreement with the EU. That didn't happen in isolation. There's a reason for that. Uh, Russia and China are both deploying faster, quieter submarines, not just for the hell of it. They are trying to counter U.S. military dominance on the seas. Russia and China haven't put weapons in space. Star Wars is here today just for the fun of it. They're doing it because they want to have the capability 
of paralyzing the U.S. military and U.S. civilian institutions. We don't, in my experience, talk about those dots. We don't connect those dots. We don't talk about those fronts as part of a contiguous war, but they are. And uh, as I saw that in my own experience and began to speak to the, to the men and women who were already thinking in those terms in the U.S. intelligence agencies and in deployed forces and in the, in the Defense Department, they're talking about it, but we're not talking about it in public. Uh, I, I felt a, something of a duty, really, as, as an American to bang the gong, as it were, and war warn my fellow Americans that there's something happening here and our leaders aren't talking about it in a way that we understand. And that's, that's how I came to write this book. I, you know, we, we, I had the, uh, the charter of the City Club read to me dutifully before I entered the room today. <laughs> and, and I can't quote it back to you except the I have no axe to grind line. Uh, I, did, I did remember that. And I, and I just want to read this because uh, we, we live in turbulent, divisive times, and I work for an organization that is often viewed or targeted as, as acting with a partisan agenda, which I assure you we are not, but anyway, those are the days we live in. Uh, this is from the last page of my book, and it just gets to why I wrote this book. My personal motivation in writing this book is far from political. I'm writing this solely as a concerned American. I've always thought that living overseas cements rather than weakens your patriotism. Yes, you can often better identify your country's weaknesses from abroad, but you could also better recognize its strengths. In its vision, there is no question that America has far more to offer the world than China and Russia. The shadow war is, in large part, a battle of those visions. I see this book as alerting my fellow Americans to this war and the threat it presents to what our country holds dear. As the great Eric Severide once said of journalists, all that we try to do is live at the growing points of society and detect the cutting edges of history. The shadow war is one perhaps defining cutting edge of American history. And I do see it in those terms, and I wrote this book not just as a journalist, but as an American who felt that as a country, we're missing the forest for the trees, in effect. And this is a very dangerous forest that we're approaching here. So these are the fronts. I think Americans in general, folks in this room, very well informed, know that Russia interfered in the presidential election. They're aware of the information operation side of this shadow war. I mean, it's, sadly, our country is still divided on the severity of it, or even among some, whether it happened and to what degree, but there's no doubt. Evidence is there. You could read the intelligence community's assessment, and we're learning more about it in the years since 2016. So you have that. I think most Americans are aware that China uh, outright steals U.S. private sector intellectual property and U.S. national security secrets. Uh, so they know about that. Uh, I don't think they know how extensive that is. I write about that a lot in here. Um, folks are aware something went on in Ukraine, but why do we really care that Russia went into Ukraine? Do we care they're not a NATO member? It's far away. I do remind people it's in Europe. It is in Europe. Uh, but what is that really part of? They might have read about China manufacturing islands in the South China Sea, but that seems a far way away too. I'm convinced that very few Americans know that Russia has, and China have deployed weapons to space and that they're floating around above our heads right now in every orbit, low Earth, medium Earth orbit, right up to geostationary orbits, so right up to 22,000 miles. Russia and China have uh, perfected the art uh, of maneuverability um, with hostile intent. So they have what U.S. Space Command refers to as kamikaze satellites, ones that can maneuver up to crucial U.S. satellites 
ram into them, if need be, or other ways disrupt their operations. There were already lasers in space, directed energy weapons. They can fry the satellites, or they could blind them, they could dazzle them. They're already up there. It's happening right now. And they've demonstrated that capability at every orbit where all of our most sensitive satellites are. Uh, I don't think most Americans know about that. They probably know that China and Russia have submarines, but most folks aren't aware that China and Russia have made enormous strides in how quiet and how fast they are. That's a problem, because if you've watched the hunt for Red October, a quiet submarine that you can't detect is an offensive weapon. And it can pop up off your coastline, and in the event of war, drop a few, few nuclear warheads on your, on your head. Um, there's a reason why the US Navy gets alarmed when a Russian sub pops up unannounced off the coast of Florida. That's waving his hand, say, here we are. Or when a Chinese sub popped up in the middle of a US carrier group without warning, and they didn't see it coming, that got them really nervous. Uh, the Chinese have diesel electric submarines. They don't have nuclear really in the advanced stage, but they're quieter, and that's a problem. So you have this happening in the information operation level. Let's interfere in election. Let's widen the divisions. Let's disadvantage one candidate, advantage another candidate. You ha and, and China, by the way, does it election interference as well, not just here, but in a number of countries. You have old 19th century territorial acquisition happening today. Russia invaded a European country. It's still there. It ain't moving. China, showing what an engineering marvel it is, just up and created the territory in the South China Sea. Took little rocks and atolls that barely peaked above the waves at low tide, and now they have hundreds of football fields of land that's been militarized. Airstrips long enough to accommodate every jet in the Chinese Air Force. Missile emplacements, hardened air, aircraft hangars, deep water ports for Navy ships. They got them, territorial acquisition. Weapons in space. Why do they put weapons in space? No one is more advanced in space than we are, but also therefore more dependent on it. Our military, and I spent a lot of time with the US military, beyond the stuff you know about, smart bombs wouldn't be smart without GPS, drones don't fly, can't navigate very well without GPS. Uh, we have enormous visibility from surveillance satellites to the point where when I've been deployed with US Marines on the ground in Afghanistan, they will pop out their little laptop, hardened laptop, and they have a red dot system that identifies bad guys. And they could be like, oh, there's a red dot on the other side of that cement wall over there. You know, drop a bomb on his head. You know, that's satellite technology that gives them that capability. Um, drones, of course, as well. So more advanced, more dependent. You snatch a couple of those away from us, particularly in wartime, and our military, which is dependent on those technologies, has trouble operating in a, in a battle space. I speak to Navy commanders and others, and they say, I don't know that we would know how to fight without those tools because, because we've become so dependent on it. There's a reason why the Navy is t teaching folks to use sextants again, because there may just be a time when that's all you got to point the ship in the right direction in the event of war. So that's space. Um, Submarines, again, it's about projection of power far from your shores. And if you're doing it quieter and faster, we can't keep up with you. And both Russia and China are operating in spaces with submarines that they haven't, either for a long time or ever. Russia has been popping up in the Med. You might have seen this. They're sending more subs down through the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap. It's called the GIUK gap. It's basically the entrance into the Atlantic Ocean. So many that, you know, we can't follow them all, and it's not a long hop from there to the US East Coast. Um, 
these things are connected. Um, and, and that's part, again, of the mission here is, is to get folks talking about and aware of not just the fronts they, they know about, but the fronts that we don't talk about and how those are tied together. Now, to be clear, I'm not the only one talking about this because when you speak to folks in the intel agencies, and you'll hear some of this in the public testimony or in the five-sided building uh, in Washington, they will talk about it. If you speak to the subcommanders or the folks working in the NSA op operations center, they will talk about it. But you don't hear it bubble up in public conversation, certainly from the White House, uh, but also even not that often on the Hill from folks on the relevant committees. And that's got to change. And don't listen to me on, on that purely. The folks on the front lines, they want to hear that kind of leadership and clear, uh, clear messaging on the threat that the U.S. is facing and also, by the way, how we're going to respond to it. So that's the shadow war. A lot of these behaviors didn't start yesterday. I'll give you an example. There's a big chapter in here on uh, Russian election interference in 2016. Prior to 2016, in 2014 and 2015, Russia, in fact, the same hacking groups that carried out the election interference, Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear, anybody hear of those guys? Uh, it's actually sort of a hacking collective. They carried out a broad uh, hack of the State Department email system. Um, they got a lot of important information uh, out of it. It's all about intelligence building, because you could draw a lot of information from those, those emails. You compare it to classified systems. You, you paint pictures of people. I can identify that I think you're an undeclared CIA station chief in Beijing based on your movements and communications, that kind of thing. They use it to build an, an intel picture. So prior to 2016, Russia was sending a signal as to how aggressive they were being in that space. And one change, uh, I spoke to, I speak in the book to the former deputy director of the, the NSA, that the US noticed over that time period is that prior to 2014, 2014's a big year, other stuff happened in Ukraine if you remember, Russian hackers would attempt to cover their tracks. If the NSA tracked them down and said, okay, I see these guys, cozy bears, messing around here, they kind of go to ground, pop up somewhere else with different clothing on, as it were, you know, kind of different um, uh, camouflage in, in electronic terms. But starting in 2014, he said they just didn't care anymore. You get them there, they just come through the back door or over the top or in the window. They just weren't afraid for us to know how much more aggressive they were getting. So, you know, one of those many missed signals along the way. And you see that in a number of these spaces. Um, you remember the Skripal poisoning. This is in May of last year in the UK. So Russia uses the most powerful nerve agent in the world, Novichok, even more powerful than VX. So more powerful than anything the US has ever made or used, and we don't make or use it, use it anymore. And they use it to attempt to kill former KGB agent and his daughter on the streets of Salisbury, England. I start the book with an anecdote of being, sitting down with a source a few months ago who told me that the Brits had discovered that these guys, when they came in to kill Skripala and his daughter, had brought in enough Novichok to kill thousands of people. Now, it was already pretty alarming to attempt a murder on foreign soil, NATO ally, with a powerful nerve agent. But to bring in enough, and, and they didn't believe it was their intention to, but they were just like, you know what? We're just going to bring it in. Forget it. Screw you. You know, that was the attitude um, with great risk. And as it turned out, you bring in that much, some ends up in the wrong hands, as it did, to a, a woman. She died, and, and her, her boyfriend picked it up. They thought it was perfume. 
because it was disguised in a Nina Ricci perfume bottle, rubbed it on her hand, she dies. Um, could have been a lot worse. Uh, but the size and scope of it was another one of those signals that Russia just doesn't care, man. They'll, they'll kill in the most horrible way possible, and this stuff is designed to kill you in the most horrible way possible on your soil, and forget about it. When I spoke to European diplomats after that, but also American intelligence agents and others, they said, man, when we saw that Skripal thing, we really knew Russia was taking the gloves off. And I said, fine. But I remember that 12 years before, in 2006, I'd covered a very similar operation on British soil by Russians. This time not using a nerve agent, but using a radioactive agent. If anybody remembers on Alexander Litvinenko, Russian dissident, by then a UK citizen. They used polonium-210 to kill him, injecting it into his tea at the Pine Bar at the Millennium Hotel in London, about 20 yards from the US Embassy, by the way, giving him the most horrible death possible. And they were very uh, successful, sadly, in his operation. But like Novichok and that operation, polonium is so powerful, and they brought enough in, uh, that they ended up contaminating dozens of people beyond Litvinenko uh, and threatening hundreds based on folks who had contact. Um, I, I actually had to get a radiation test because in covering that story, I'd been to a number of the locations where these two assassins had met with Litvinenko, so they tested me. I won't go into details. It involved large volumes of liquid samples. Thankfully, it was a few weeks before my wedding. I was clear. <laughs> Dozens of British citizens, uh, some connected to Litvinenko, some who might have just ridden a bus with his wife, um, were contaminated. They're going to live with those consequences for the rest of their life. They're being monitored now. Um, so the thought, as we were covering the reaction to Skripal, that I had was, like, why were we so surprised if 12 years before they had done much the same thing? And I just want to read a section of the book because it gets to the thinking, which gets to a broader point about how much we miss this through the years. Let's see. In 2006, 12 years before Skripal's poisoning alarmed the world, the Kremlin had already calculated it could get away with murder on Western soil, and it would be proved mostly correct. Britain's belated response was to expel four Russian diplomats a full decade after Litvinenko died. In 2017, Congress would impose sanctions under the Magnitsky Act on Andrei Lugovoy, he was one of the assassins, the only Russian national to be targeted by the U.S. The penalties for the 20, 2006 operation, delicately measured and long delayed, were clearly insufficient to change Russian behavior, perhaps laying the groundwork for a repeat on the streets of Salisbury in 2018. To add insult to grievous injury, Lugovoy would be elected a member of the Russian State Duma, where he still serves today. Two deadly operations on Western soil using weapons that threaten the lives of thousands carried out under orders from the Russian president 12 years apart. For Russia, it is difficult to identify one single attack as the opening battle of its shadow war on the U.S. and the West. However, the events of the last decade show two consistent and disturbing lines, growing Russian aggression and persistent Western delusions about Russian intentions. The same pattern is discernible regarding China, which was launching its own inaugural battles in another arguably more existentially dangerous shadow war on the U.S. That was just one episode in researching this book and in my reporting leading up to wanting to sit down to write this book where I saw and other smart people involved saw that we had the evidence be before us for years and, and yet continued to either ignore it 
or imagine that over time these behaviors would change. Um, I have the benefit in this book of, of having interviewed a number of very senior officials who were at the top tiers of government while this was happening. Uh, Jim Clapper, former DNI, Michael Hayden, former CIA director, Ash Carter, former defense secretary, uh, the current head of strategic command, John Hyten, uh, the former head of the Brit British MI6, John Scarlett. I speak to a, a number of Estonian officials because they've often been on the front lines here. And they're self-critical in their analysis because they say we didn't recognize it sufficiently as it was happening. Um, Ash Carter uses the term mirroring frequently. The, the, the persistent mis mistake from multiple administrations, and again, as I said early on, of both parties, was imagining that Russia and China want what we want or that over time they will, that they'll liberalize, they'll democratize, invite Russia into an association agreement with NATO, and they'll see why NATO's a good thing and want to work with us and not seek to undermine it, which has been the reality, and with a lot of evidence. Bring China into the WTO, they'll stop cheating and stealing, uh, stealing intellectual property. Hasn't happened. Even in the face of obvious evidence that mirroring continued, uh, and that's a persistent mistake uh, of the shadow war and our response to it. It's changing today at many levels of government and the military and the intelligence agencies, uh, but man, we got behind. We got behind on this. Uh, and, and that's something that, that you do hear at the strategic level, the commanders and the intel officials talking about the strategy. Like I said earlier, you don't hear it at the top of the government. You even hear disagreement as to whether the facts of the shadow war are facts at all. Did Russia interfere in the election? How aggressively is Russia an adversary or not? On, on the China side, we have more agreement. You see that in the president's response to China, Chinese trade misbehavior, illegal behavior, and, and theft of state secrets. Uh, you don't see it on the Russia side. And, and that's what's still missing today. So today you have the recognition of the threat, but we don't have a consistent strategy, at least an articulated strategy for, for how to respond to it. Uh, I just want to end with a final anecdote because I'm conscious of being a lot smart people in the room are going to have a lot of smart questions to ask, uh, specific to the, to the theft of state secrets. Uh, I have a chapter in here that just focuses on one Chinese spy, in effect. He was a Chinese-American businessman currently serving in a federal prison, uh, Stephen Su, or Su Bin, who over the course of four years, he with two partners in China, just three guys, one person on the ground here, stole hundreds of gigabytes of data on America's three, three of America's most advanced aircraft, the F-35, the F-22, and the C-17, over four years. The FBI caught him, but after four years. And there's a reason today, just as a measure of their success, that China is flying three jets that look remarkably like the F-35, the F-22, and the C-17. Google the images and put them next to each other. They look alike. They got a lot. Bob Anderson, former head of counterintel for the FBI, he says that by his estimate, we're aware of about 10% uh, of Chinese actors in this space, 10%, one out of 10. And even the ones you're aware of, you might catch them pretty far into their game, like a guy like Sue Bin, just one guy who had, had that enormous success. Um, that's the magnitude of the problem today. So if you're waiting to address it, you're losing. That's already been the story of the shadow war. And the longer that we wait to address it, and address it as one country together, as opposed to divided factions within the country, or even debate whether it's happening, uh, 
the more likely you are to lose the shadow war. And that's where we are, that's where we are today. With that, I look forward to your grilling. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club and a proud member. And today we're enjoying a forum with Jim Shudo. He's the Chief National Security Correspondent for CNN. He is an author as well. The book is called The Shadow War Inside Russia and China's Secret Operations to Defeat America. We're about to begin our Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are Content Coordinator Bliss Davis and Marketing and Outreach Coordinator Julia Wong. May we have our first question, please? Uh, good afternoon, and welcome to Cleveland, and thanks so much for drawing our attention to what's going on with the Shadow War. Um, I guess what I found fascinating about this is, it's you know, for someone who studies IR, the fact that the United States finds itself in power competitions with Russia and China both for their own historical reasons, they come at it from slightly different uh, intentions, maybe you can elaborate on that. But what I found fascinating was the US reaction. And does this have to do with the United States level of comfort with the exercise of power globally? Mm. And we started off engaging in World War II with a certain notion of who we are, and do we need to redefine that? Mm. Okay, a few things in there. <laughs> uh, let me start, I'll, I'll start on, you know, the, the two of them. So, so, so China and Russia, remarkably, two different countries with, with different histories, languages, continents, religions, you name it, have struck on a very similar strategy. They call them different things. Uh, we've come to call the Russian strategy the Gerasimov Doctrine. It's hybrid warfare um, and, and permanent war, as, as the Russians describe it, on multiple fronts, but below the threshold of a shooting war. They, they, they've calculated how far they can go without a decisive response by the U.S., and they've been pretty good in their calculations here. We can invade a European country. Yeah, we got some sanctions slapped on us, but we still got the territory. We got a warm water port in Sevastopol. You know, see you later. Um, so that's, you know, the, that's what the Russians call it. The, the Chinese, with a very similar calculation, they call it winning without fighting. Uh, same thing. So, so you gain on all these fronts, but without getting into a shooting war. Now, both of them prepare for a shooting war and increase their chances of, of winning or at least being able to play on something of a level playing field. But the intention is get as much as you can without going to that, to that step. Folks will often ask me, are they working together? No, they have their own intentions. If they see a convergence of interests, absolutely. I don't know if you noticed a, a little encounter uh, on the sea just this last week, a Russian destroyer. Well, the, the stuff is happening with, with greater frequency all over the world principally by Russia, but also China. Interesting timing, she was meeting Putin at the time of that. Uh, and by the way, it was a Russian destroyer in the East China Sea. Some, some, some convergence of message sending to the, to the US there. Both Russia and China, for instance, on North Korea seem to have calculated that messing with US negotiations is, in, is just in their interest. They're both helping North Korea evade sanctions. So sometimes they converge. They also have a lot of disagreements. Uh, Russia is worried about Chinese influence in the eastern part of its country, low population there, China has greater influence. So they're, they're not holding hands, but they, they have similarly calculated how to mess with the U.S. And, and when it suits them, they will, you know, they'll work together. So about US, the U.S. approach to it, I mean, I had a couple thoughts on that. I mean, one is, and again, these guys, these men and women talk about uh, this mistake, is that 
a lot of these, this aggression was on the upsurge while the U.S. was very much occupied in the Middle East, post 9-11, you know, the Iraq invasion, Afghanistan invasion, occupation. Um, so that's where the resources were going, the intelligence, the focus, the money, the dollars, all that kind of stuff. So that's been one thing that distracted from, from this other more existential threat. Um, you said U.S. pulling back from the world. Yes, I mean, Russia and China seek to exploit that where it happens. Do you think Russia w was sad about the U.S. withdrawal from Syria? No, just ceded Syria to Russia. You know, it's, they love it. And that, by the way, is another base that Russia has on the Mediterranean. One reason they love being in Syria, they, they have a naval and sub-base on the eastern end of the Mediterranean and an air base, all nice stuff as you want to expand your influence. Did I answer all of your questions? <laughs> uh, yes, do you think the uh, current practice of sometimes withholding visas from Chinese students or stopping businessmen who want to go for our EB-5 visas, is that an appropriate response to this? Well, listen, China definitely uses students and businessmen as spies, right? Doesn't mean everyone is, but they do. Su Bin, Stephen Su, was a gregarious uh, small Chinese small businessman who had a lot of contracts with U.S. Defense Department subcontractors, loved to drink wine and go to fancy restaurants in California, but he was a Chinese spy, right? So you, it's, and, and some of the students who come here are, you know, do, doing work for the government. Um, I mean, I, I don't say that to say that every time you're sitting next to someone from China, they're a spy, because that's not true. One, two, I've lived in China for many years and have many Chinese friends, and uh, they're good people and welcoming people, and um, many of them, not all of them, and probably not most of them, but, but some of them don't like what their government is up to. So, I mean, you have to better vet that process. I don't know if reducing the general number of those kinds of visas is a good thing. And the trouble is now we are in a trade war that by some measures, you listen to the Jack Ma's of the world, this is a decades-long trade war. You know, this is not going to end in a few months like the, the Mexico thing. So, you know, there's going to be have to be a calculation about the security interests and how they're measured against economic costs, because there are already real economic costs to that. Uh, Jim, my question to you is, and <clears throat> I was talking to an FBI senior official, and they talked about how Chinese influence on our media has been tremendous, mm -hmm. that we look at a movie that is yeah. going to market to a billion and a half people and how we adapt to that model. Have we, as a society, chosen money over values? Hmm. Great question. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, I mean, w watch the movies, okay? Th there's a reason why there's a Chinese piece to the movie The Martian, right? Remember, it's the Chinese rocket comes to the rescue, right? Or The Meg, which I watched part of on a plane, I have to confess to you uh, in this room. <laughs> Uh, you know, you had, there's a reason why you're seeing Chinese characters in those big Hollywood blockbusters, or what was the Matt Damon one with the Great Wall and, you know, whatever. They're looking for films that, that appeal, but also in a way, because China, when it approves any movie project, trust me, the political messaging and implications are extremely high on their list. So, yeah, I mean, movie, movies are powerful, uh, soft power tools, right? Um, you know, the bigger picture question, has money trump values? God, I mean, there, there are so many examples of that. Um, I'll tell you this, when I was in the um, 
was on, when I was in the embassy in, in Beijing, we'd of course talk to a lot of US companies who were getting screwed there, right? Either their technology being stolen via cyber means or via the joint ventures they had to sign, you know, the foreign technology transfer. Sure, come do business here. I'm a majority owner, and by the way, I want all your IP, you know. And the companies would do it, and for years they're getting robbed blind. But they would tell us this is happening, but don't go to China on this because I don't want to get in trouble, basically. I don't want to get kicked out of the market. It's still happening. And you have companies, listen, when I was there, this, I was there 2011 to 2013, Google was something of a hero because Google would not abide by China's search rules, things like you can't search June 4th or Tiananmen, right? I mean, these are, um, these are weapons of mind control in effect. Google wouldn't play by those rules. Google wants back into China and is not so principled in its, uh, in its resistance to that kind of thing. So there are certainly a lot of instances of that. You know, I, I don't know big picture as, as an entire country we have. I mean, right now, to be again, credit where credit's due. This president is confronting China on those bad trade practices, practices to a degree that previous presidents didn't like and complained about, but didn't go after China as definitively as this president is. Now, it's all going to be in the results because China, I've always, I always say to people, China's not a democracy, but it has domestic politics. And a Chinese president cannot be seen to be kowtowing to a US president on trade where national security is involved. Because remember, China looks at this as a national security issue. So it's an open question as to whether the beating them over the head with the cudgel drives them further away from agreement than, than you might be. That's why, again, you have very senior Chinese businessmen talking about a decades-long trade war. They don't see a way out of it. Long, rambling answer to your question. I hope I got somewhere. <laughs> Knowing what you know, do you ever have trouble falling asleep at night? Mm. <laughs> well, so just two thoughts on that. One, the final chapter in this book is about solutions. And, and, uh, and I polled the smart folks who crystal crystallize a lot of these ideas. And there, there's no single silver bullet, but there are ways to address it, and they're achievable. They're not, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. They're not miracles. They're things that work and have worked in the past. Strengthen alliances, negotiate a treaty for cyberspace or outer space set better red lines, impose costs that actually matter. And there are very specific ideas in there. I'll just give you an example on that. Um, so you know, the sa sanctioning Russian individuals and entities, how successful has that policy been for election interference? No. They did it again in 2018. They can do it, do it again in 2020. For territorial acquisition? No. You know, they're still in Crimea. Uh, we've complained a lot about Chinese behavior. South China Sea, they're still there. <laughs> Uh, I don't see them releasing 100, uh, 1 million Muslim Uyghurs. So the, the penalties clearly aren't changing the behavior. So you've got to raise the penalties to a point where it makes a difference. A couple specific ideas. Um, I mean, Ash Carter brings up the idea of running our own information ops against the Russians. And we do some of this, but more aggressively. He gave the idea of exposing Vladimir Putin's stolen riches to the Russian people, right? Here's what's in his bank account. Here's where he got it. By the way, he's got a villa, which I've seen, in Sardinia. It's worth more than, you know, half of Moscow, whatever. You know, do that, expose it. Or expose to Russians the number of Russian regular soldiers who are dying in Syria. Lied about, covered up, families who lose those soldiers are pressured not to do it. You know, that kind of thing to expose the cost of it. You know, you could, you could that's just one example of ways you, you can push back. Um, so th there are ways to approach it, and they're not things that we can't do, right? Um, but on the not sleep at night part, 
uh, Jim Clapper, the, when, when I asked him about this kind of stuff early on, I said, so you've been in Intel 50 years. Tell me how you view today's challenges and threats compared to, I don't know, Vietnam War era, Cold War era, post 9-11, you know, you name it. And, and he said, he said he had never experienced a greater variety of, of threats from in so many different battlefields from so many different places in his 50 years in intelligence. And the way I knew he was not making it up is he said that he used to treat himself um, early on to, to a martini on Friday evenings at the end of a busy work week, although his work week never ended because he would work through the weekend. But he said that starting a couple years ago, he had a martini every night. That was his. Uh, <laughs> so if it worked for him, it maybe it could work for us. <laughs> My question is, <clears throat> is about uh, the balance or balancing between our security and the granting of uh, what we call non-immigrant visa. Mm -hmm. F1 visa, as I'm sure you know, international students. We have in, in the US over a million, 1.2 million, 1.2 million international students, F1 visa status. Uh, from China alone, there are, I believe, around 250,000 of them. A lot of them come as you know, cyberspace and scientists mm -hmm. and things. But my question, again, the, the main part of my question is granting visas from country that some of whom, if we go back to 9-11, 15 of the 19 of the hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Dealing with this kind of visa myself one time with international students, there is no rejection to any Saudi students. And there is, a matter mm -hmm. of fact, uh, during King Abdullah's period, there was a, an agreement to send around 40 to 50,000 every year to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So do you have, what's your take on this issue? that granting, and even though the travel ban, is, as you know, yeah. doesn't affect Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So what's your advice to our Homeland Security, actually, uh, officials about that, and how can we be make little safe that, you know, people come from countries right. that damaged, you know, us um, shouldn't be granted this sure, kind of no, I get it. Listen, I mean, you shouldn't close your doors, right? I mean, we're, we're a country of immigrants, and we benefit from not just folks who immigrate here and become Americans, but from people coming in and out of the country, exchange of ideas, building businesses, et cetera, just in the most general terms. Um, I know this from my personal experience that wherever I've traveled in the world, you, you'll meet someone and, and, first of all, everybody has a cousin in New Jersey for some reason. <laughs> you, you know that, right? Uh, and, uh, but, but so often folks have done some time in the States or studied. I remember, you know, I met, I met a guy in Saudi Arabia, interestingly, years ago, and he was, uh, he, he was uh, I, I think you might call him a hardline cleric. I mean, he, he had some uncomfortable views about the U.S. I mean, he was not a 9-11 sympathizer, but still, it was not an easy conversation, interview. And then at the end of the interview, he said, um, I, I said, so, I mean, he, he said to me, he's like, do you know Bowling Green University? And I was like, I do, because my mother's from Kentucky. And he said, uh, I got an engineering degree there, right? And then, and then, then we were best friends. You know, th that kind of exchange makes a difference, right? The fact that I've lived in those countries helped me understand things, and it's good for them to come here. There's also a financial element to it, right? Those 250,000 Chinese students, most of them pay full ride. Universities love that. Uh, and you're having a, a pushback uh, on that now. So I mean, we, we have to balance both the benefits and the risks, and you, you do have to better vet. You have to be aware beyond the students uh, of the government institutional influence here. I'm sure you've done some reading about Confucius centers often on US campuses here, but these are government-funded soft power ops, right, that, that push 
a certain government line and often then pressure U.S. institutions not to cover things about. I, I can't cite a specific example, but there have been cases where the Confucius Institutes that have and give a lot of money to universities not comfortable if, say, I don't know, a professor's talking about Taiwanese independence, right? I mean, so you have to be very conscious about that soft power uh, influence as well. And I think you can, you can push back on that and, and hopefully track the bad actors better uh, without just suddenly tearing up everybody's visa. Yes, you can't, this country can't agree on Russian collusion, and we had all kind of investigations. No. We can't agree on building a wall. Now, you asking me to uh, worry about China and Russia trying to defeat, you know, trying to take over. What, what, how are we gonna, where is the, where is the, proof of any of this stuff. The proof of what? The proof that they're... Proof. Okay, the, the proof, okay. How are we going to believe it? How is this country, how yeah. are people in this country going to believe yeah. it or act on it? I hear you. And even if they do believe it, will they act? Yeah. Where, you know, it, it, will, uh, it will be a benefit, where it'll be our benefit. I get it. No, I get where you come from. Listen, we make it a heck of a lot easier for China and Russia by battling amongst, amongst ourselves, even in the face of obvious and incontrovertible evidence. And, and the Russian interference in the elections, it's just, it's so well documented and clear and the layers of evidence, you know, even the unclassified portions are pretty darn convincing. And yet, you have folks here either because they can't bring themselves to believe it or uh, see political benefit in not acknowledging the extent to which it happened, um, who just won't go there, and, and who do Russia's work for them, right? They do, and it's, uh, and the president's among them, right? The president stood next to Putin in Helsinki, he did. It's like, and I, I've talked to folks in, in the intel world who watched that moment and depressed beyond belief as they watched that, the folks who did the hard work of this. So, you know, if, if we can't agree on, on the facts, then we can't begin to address the issue, and that's, that's, a, that's a sad fact. I mean, some people, many people are still working to, to take the steps necessary and put up the defenses necessary despite that, but you need a whole-of-government response, which requires leadership from the top and a common kind of message and voice, uh, and we don't have that right now. And, and China and Russia are very aware of that, and, and they, they work to expand those cleavages. Anywhere they are, whether it's on interference or seemingly unrelated issues. It's a great, Michael Hayden tells a great story here about Russia jumping into the NFL protests, uh, take a knee protests. And one reason they knew it was Russian trolls, one way they identified the Russian trolls is they used the wrong hashtag. Instead of take a knee, they used take the knee, because it's hard if anybody's ever studied a foreign language to get the articles right in the right place. But, uh, so the Russians were right there. They're in Black Lives Matter. They're in gun control. You know, anything that's divisive, they like to play with it, and certainly our, our partisan politics. So that makes it hard to win, you know, if you're battling each other. And that's, uh, so we have to do a better job or they're gonna eat our lunch. So as a, a business person, I've been following the whole Belt and Road Initiative. Mm. You kind of skirted around it a little bit, and 
you know, you'd watch the Chinese grab the rare earth metals. Um, they control something mm -hmm. like 80% now, yep. if I'm, the reporting is accurate. The question is, is I've been watching this from the sidelines and not concerned, and I'm figuring that these big corporations that rely on these metals mm -hmm. are also well aware of what's happening and they don't seem concerned. Flipping that back to the other side, where you're at, you're covering the, the, our intelligence agencies and our military. Are you confident in our people that are running these agencies mm -hmm. um, to, to a actually you know, have the plans in place mm -hmm. to kind of address these issues when it, when it comes to a head? Um, and uh, you know, how have we been so successful, at least of me being aware of like the whole Belt and Road Initiative, mm -hmm. and uh, the media hasn't really kind of covered this other element of the shadow wars that we're facing. Mm -hmm. You're talking about Belt and Road specifically, yeah. yeah. No, Belt and Road's a great example of soft power. It's sort of like a global Marshall Plan to some degree, and you, you create infrastructure and therefore dependencies in, in, in countries around the world, which is something the U.S. used to do pretty well, but we haven't uh, been doing as much of it lately. So that's absolutely part of the grand plan. And of course, Belt and Road accelerating as the U.S. pulled out of the TPP, which is not a Belt and Road plan, but it was, it's a, it was a trade agreement that brought together all of our closest allies in Asia to kind of you know, build these kind of business ties. Um, and you know, the, one go in one direction and the other go in the other direction at the same time was, it was a win for China. It was, it was just straight up a win for China. Do I have confidence in the folks running the intelligence agencies? I do, in large part. I mean, and you could see them because... The, Look at their testimony on the Hill. Dan Coates, DNI, he talks about this very directly and without putting a sugar coating on it. Uh, Nakasone running Cyber Command. Uh, Chris Ray talks a lot about China. Even Pompeo, actually. Pompeo, generally more political in his kind of stances, but he, he has been very forward-leaning on China, less so on Russia, but that, not necessarily. I mean, for instance, he calls out WikiLeaks for what it is, an, an arm, in effect, of Russian intelligence, which is something that in certain ends of the Republican Party, you don't hear that, right? You'll say, well, it's just a news operation that provided important, helpful information to, to the political process here in the U.S. I still hear that every day. So, you know, the, um, you know, you have some, some very good patriotic Americans, I think, running those agencies. But what I will say is those folks, and then the folks who are tears down from them, literally on the front lines of this, they're craving leadership from the top and, and uh, public messaging from the top with consistency. And they don't hear that. And they say that that's essential to fighting this in a way that you can win it. You, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned the difference in perception that uh, we perceive the Chinese interference more than we do the Russian. Do you think that's cultural? Is that racial? Is that... Uh, too much of an optimism about the Russians having reformed after the fall of the Berlin Wall? Can you, can you, well, I, identify it? You're saying you're saying that, I, that we were better at identifying Russian misbehavior than Chinese, or the other way around? No, the other way around. You oh, indicated yeah. we're more likely to react. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, my argument actually is that we missed both. I mean, that, that we we mirrored both, thinking that both Russia and China, in different ways, wanted to reform in our direction. You know over time, post fall of the wall in 1991, and around a similar time as China was rising, that, that it would, you know, and as it, as it got richer, that it would get friendlier. But 
So, so my, my argument really is that we, we made the same mistake uh, for both of them, although they behave in slightly different ways. I mean, I, I didn't mean to be flippant on this because I was, Colbert asked me about this on his show about who, well, people always ask who's the bigger threat. And the general view is that Russia is the more aggressive, dangerous, short-term threat. Just, they're just a little more forward-leaning. You know, they're throwing punches, kind of, you can see the punches coming a little bit more with Russia. And China is the, is the uh, greater, more existential long-term threat just because they have the resources of, of a giant economy, a giant population, uh, et cetera, where, whereas Russia has the economy about the size of a US state, Texas or so, depending on how you measure it. So that's the general description of who's a bigger threat over time. Uh, with Colbert, I got a little flippant, but uh, I said that like, Russia's like your drunk friend at the party, you know their trouble, you know? They walk in, they're kind of throwing elbows, and China's kind of quietly scheming in the background, but we'll stab you in the back. Um, that's not entirely true, because if you read the chapter uh, on, uh, on Chinese um, theft of state secrets, Bob Anderson, the former cop, he just talks like a former cop, but he, I mean, he, he says the Chinese are just as or more vicious than Russians. He said they will kill you, they will kill, their, they will kill your family, they don't mess around either. They just do it in a slightly different way. So, yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. You guys are. Thank you very much. Thank you. Today at the City Club, we've been terrified by Jim Shuto, <laughs> the chief national security correspondent for CNN and author of The Shadow War Inside Russia and China's Secret Operations to Defeat America. Our forum today is the annual WCLV Forum endowed by Robert and Jean Conrad, which recognizes the extraordinary relationship between a great Cleveland radio station and the City Club and celebrates their mutual respect for the fundamental importance of freedom of speech. We're delighted to have Bob Conrad with us today. Thank you for your continued support of the City Club. Our forum is also sponsored by PWC. We're so pleased to have Mark Ross and his colleagues with us today. Thank you for your support of City Club programming, Mark. Mr. Shuto also appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful to all the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through that public grant. Our community partners for our program today are the Cleveland Council on World Affairs and the Society of Professional Journalists. We appreciate your partnership. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables at, at the table host, tables hosted by Falls Communications and friends of Dave Nash. Thank you for being here today. The sale of Mr. Shuto's book, The Shadow War, is provided by a cultural exchange. That brings us to the end of our program. Thank you, Mr. Shuto. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.